and welcome to the Flame podcast, where we explore the future libraries, archives and museums in excavation. My name is Laura Wilson and I'm a clear postdoctoral fellow at Fisk University in Nashville. And I'm Ajit Tornator, Humanities and Digital Scholarship Librarian at MIT Libraries. In this podcast series, we analyze the interviews we conducted with people who work in the cultural heritage world of museums, libraries, galleries, and archives, as well as scholars who are part of that world. This episode is about missing narratives in US history and why adding those narratives into the mainstream is necessary and pressing, referring to our first episode's title, Necessary Pressing in Public conversations, the Slave Dwelling Project and the Indigenous DC iOS app. In this first series of Flame, we analyze and elevate recurrent topics in the interviews we conducted. The full interviews are inspiring in their own right and will be available on our project website. Our interviewees today are Joseph McGill and Elizabeth Rule. Joseph, or Joe McGill, is a historic interpreter at Magnolia Plantation and Gardens in South Carolina and the founder of the Slave Dwelling Project, an initiative that seeks to raise awareness of the hidden stories of enslaved individuals at popular historic and national heritage sites. A quick disclaimer for our listeners, um, there's some recurrent background noise in a number of Joe's clips, which we hope are not too detracting from hearing his important message. Here's Joe in his own words. I've gone to... Uh, 25 states in the District of Columbia spending nights in slave dwellings. I've uh, slept in uh, about 150, um, maybe about 200 plus sleepovers. Um, and they're, um, they're in that number 200 plus because some of these places I've slept in, you know, more than once. Um, so yeah, those, the, the, there is that count. Now, you know, going in 11 years ago, there were some of those places that said no to my request. Some of those places have since come back around and, and there are now part of the portfolio. But even with that, there are still those places out there that, um, you know, I'm trying to, to get into. My ultimate quest, of course, is the, is the White House uh, because our enslaved ancestors, you know, built that. And they, they, they worked there, they were enslaved there. Um, you know, uh, 12 of uh, former presidents were slave owners, eight of whom owned slaves while they were in office. What I admire about this project is the fact that it provides a sense of the direct contact with history that Joe's visits encourage. The first time I heard him speak about his work here, it gave me the feeling of being in a space that is important, even though left invisible and the necessity to remember that space as part of the historical narrative, the location imbued with historical significance, making the narrative that is intentionally left invisible, visible. This is certainly something that our second guest, Elizabeth Rule's work is keen to do as well. Elizabeth is currently an assistant professor of critical race, gender and culture studies at the American University in Washington, DC. She's a citizen of the Chickasaw Nation, one of the tribes native to the Southeast who were forced to move to the so-called Indian Territory as a result of the Indian Removal Act of 1830 under President Andrew Jackson. Today, the tribe's headquarters is in Ada, Oklahoma. Elizabeth studies gendered violence, reproductive justice, and indigenous governance. The Guide to Indigenous DC mobile app should be viewed in that context, above all as service work to indigenous students who spend years in the city. 
In that sense, Elizabeth adds the missing indigenous narrative into the mainstream. Here's Elizabeth in her own words. I really am, am working to make some, some insights and contributions um, that address contemporary important issues for indigenous communities today. I'm probably gonna talk about it as we continue our conversation, but one of the main things that I see in my work, again, as an indigenous scholar working in indigenous studies is that oftentimes our topics are related only to, or relegated only to the past um, and to a historical context. And so I'm really trying to make an intervention um, by directing my work toward, you know, what's before Congress right now that can support tribal communities what are, um, you know, tribal nations doing on the ground to better the lives of their, you know, citizens? And that relates, I think, to the Indigenous DC work as well as to my, my work on gendered violence. In every interview we conduct for this podcast series, we ask our participants to choose three words or phrases that best describe the work that they do. This question often takes interviewees a while to mull over, and it's sometimes expressed through multiple clips and across the interview. We've decided to summarize and analyze their choices here, but you can check out their full considerations of this exercise on our podcast website. Let's start with Joe. Joe sees the work he does as necessary, and that's his first word choice. And if I think back over his whole interview, there's a sense of urgency that if he doesn't do it, if he doesn't highlight the dwellings of the enslaved, then the stories of those people in the politics of slavery will not be told. He has to persist, and persist is a second word, choice. He has to persist in doing this, and he has to believe that it will succeed. His third word, believe, is I think a reference to how difficult a task it is and how thankless, but he has to shoulder it and soldier on. Absolutely. Joe has to be persistent so that people take notice of his work and begin to realize just how necessary it is. Elizabeth, meanwhile, focused on how indigeneity is a central concern for her work, demonstrating her own ancestral connection to the research at hand. She spoke of the work being pressing, much as Joe described his as necessary, clearly showing the real need for the type of work that these two are doing. Elizabeth's third word was public facing, and as our upcoming excerpts show, she concentrated a lot on the public impact of her act in particular. Joe's interview also demonstrated how his job at Magnolia and the outreach of the Slave Dwelling Project are heavily invested in interacting with the public. It was interesting to me how Joe re-evaluated the Deep South as the locus of enslaved dwellings and encouraged people to remember the North's involvement too. You know, a lot of folks ask, well, how many slave dwellings there are in these United States? I don't know the answer to that question. You know, I'm, I'm 11 years into this project. And, and don't know. I, I do know that 11 years ago, um, I, I, I was limited in my way of thinking because I had slave dwellings relegated to plantations in southern states. And of course, that was a relevant place for them because, you know, it did take a civil war in the 13th Amendment to uh, free people in those southern states. But uh, we also have to take into account that, you know, there are northern states too where slavery existed. Because in the uh, 25 states that I've gone to, eight of those have been northern states. 
So um, um, people are, are quite surprised when I, when I tell them that. And I get a lot of pushback when I tell them that. Um, you know, that slavery existed in those northern states also. And because, you know, slavery existed in those northern states, that I, I know that this project will continue to prosper as it continues to uh, reveal those places. Despite some resistance to his important work, Joe encourages us to consider the continuing legacies of the past by sleeping in the same places that enslaved peoples once dwelled. Many of these places exist in parallel to the stereotypical big house of the white planter class, but Joe's keen to make the intimate history of the invisible and exploited labor force more widely known, even if some of the historical context can raise traumatic specters. Well, you know, it was it was those things that weren't. It's that missing element that that that, uh, that desire to to visit old things, old buildings. But in doing that, you found you find that missing element. You you see that um, the people who uh, you derive your DNA from their 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 stories are missing from these places. You know, and you're doing, um, in my case, a job for the National Trust for Historic Preservation, and, and and seeing all the resources and effort they put into saving iconic buildings, which is which is fine. That's a good thing. It's necessary, but you also find a missing element in, in all that. But but from that, you learn that you know there's some 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 things there that you can apply to the places that, that you care about, the places that can help you tell the stories that, um, that are not being told. In order to bring back that history, Joe brings the lives of the enslaved people to the forefront of people's minds. A particularly evocative example that he often retells at events involves a plantation in Texas. There's this one situation in, in Texas where I went and, and stood on an, an authentic auction block, uh, uh, Brenham, uh, Brenham, Texas, Seward Plantation, stood on an, an authentic auction block. And that was one of the most memorable moments of this journey that I'm on, you know, standing on an auction block and thinking about the people who uh, stood on auction blocks because there's someone was bidding on them. And, and for that person bidding on you, you have to bury your back to show that that potential buyer that there aren't any, aren't any marks on your back from being whipped. Because uh, that's a sign of, a course, of course, an, uh, a defiant enslaved person. And, you know, you don't want uh, a defiant, you don't want to buy a defiant enslaved person to insert in uh, into your already docile and broken enslaved people. So, you know, you think about those things when you, um, if you stand on an auction block or, or someone gets those same kinds of feelings when they when, when they spend the night in these places. One thing that I've been doing a lot lately is um, when I go to these sites, I look for fingerprints in bricks, if they're brick structures, you know, built prior to the Civil War, because I know those bricks were made by enslaved people. And in some of those bricks are some fingerprints. And uh, so you'll see me diligently looking for fingerprints when I, uh, when I visit these sites. Joe goes into slave dwellings and touches the physical remnants of the lives of enslaved people. In fact, we chose one of the photos you took, Laura, of a fingerprinted 
Rick from Traveler's Rest in Nashville, Tennessee, as representative of our series. Can you talk a little more about that and shed some light on what Joe is referring to when he mentions bricks? Yes, for sure. When Joe came to Oxford, Mississippi with the project, he talked about locating these fingerprints, which are the marks of usually young children who'd be working on the brick making process. I remember so vividly that he said it was like a hand reaching out from the past when you find those finger marks. And I've done so since on the University of Mississippi campus, as well as tra of Traveler's Rest. It really does bring an emotional reminder of the past. Joe and a local brickmaker in Holly Springs, Theoda Berry, were extremely formative in my dissertation research, which looked at the symbolism of Southern soil in early 20th century African-American literature. How do you see Elizabeth's mobile app reinvesting indigenous sites with similar spirits of these less well-known histories, AJ? The guide to indigenous DC is a mobile app, as you said, that is meant as a tour guide, an introduction, if you will, to the missing indigenous narrative in Washington, DC. Now, there are 17 locations mapped on the app, and one can do all 17 over a four-hour tour in total if they wanted to. The locations are prominent sites for the history of activism of indigenous peoples in the U.S. The first stop is the U.S. Marine Corps War Memorial with the iconic monument of Ira Hayes, Pima Nation, and five of the soldiers raising the U.S. flag in Iwo Jima during World War II. The 13th place on the tour is the Native American Veterans Memorial, which was not yet built when the app was designed. The app mapped a future location, and I find that as something that underlies the work of both Joe and Elizabeth, a correction, an interjection, if you will, that puts ignored or unknown places on the map, and in so doing, changes the future. Elizabeth is not from the DC area, but due to her advocacy work, and she was the director of the Center for Indigenous Politics and Policy at her previous institution, George Washington University. And in the interview, she makes her connections with both the indigenous people who come to DC for policy and advocacy reasons, as well as the indigenous people who live there, very clear. She had developed the app to help her indigenous students. She had them in mind primarily. And most of these students came to DC and felt alienated because they couldn't see themselves represented there. Although I'm indigenous, I'm not indigenous to the DMV area. But as I came, I really became connected with the diasporic indigenous community that lives in Washington, DC. So folks like me, right, who come from tribal nations, all across the U.S., including Alaska and Hawaii, who come to the U.S. really in large part to do advocacy work because D.C. is so central to the decision making that affects tribal nations and indigenous communities. So I became very connected and involved with that community, but also with some folks who do call um, the D.C. area their traditional ancestral homelands. And so just as I navigated that position myself, I was also working with indigenous students who were experiencing the same thing that I was. And so I realized, um, you know, some of my students were feeling maybe out of place or uncomfortable in D.C. because they weren't aware or tapped into those same networks of support that I was in community. And so I created the app to really demonstrate first and foremost to them, to my native students, that DC is an indigenous place, right? It is indigenous land and it is an indigenous place where they should feel 
right? Welcome and, and part of a community. And so, you know, that was the original intent, but it has, of course, expanded beyond that as well. Um, it also serves, like I said, members of the public who maybe have no pre-existing knowledge of any indigenous subject material who come to DC. Um, there are millions of tourists that come to DC every year. And you know, I want to make sure that they know about the indigenous aspects of this city. Um, and I say aspects because it includes history, as well as things like art, advocacy, activism, and also, like I said, as well, a contemporary present and, and future community that calls DC home. So really, to get to the resources that I, I drew on to create this, they were varied. Not unlike Joe, Elizabeth also placed the important locations of Indigenous presence on the DC map, and she uses that as a way to reclaim DC, first and foremost, as an Indigenous place. I actually took um, that group of students, that inspirational group of students out to, to do the Guide to Indigenous DC. And I now incorporate it into my curriculum every time I teach because I'm based in Washington, DC. And you know, I can just see that again, particularly amongst my native students, their whole orientation to the city seems to change, right? They have said to me that it makes them feel more welcome and more included. And especially um, prior to the Washington football team mascot or name change recently, that was, you know, a, a major sort of negative factor in their experience. And I think that the Guide to Indigenous DC, they said, was, was really sort of a source of strength that countered those more racist and, and downputting um, experiences that they had. The feedback has been overwhelmingly positive. You know, in the Apple App Store, we have a really high rating. I think it's 4.7 stars. I, we have an engagement survey at the end where folks can do a thumbs up or thumbs down. We have a thumbs up to thumbs down ratio of 37 to one. So we see that people are engaging with it and they're liking it. Um, users can sign up for our newsletter. We've had folks representing 15 different area codes sign up. So that speaks somewhat to the geographical impact and I can also see through some of our data analysis on the back end that users have downloaded the app from five different countries around the world. So, you know, it's certainly getting out there. We're now in the thousands in terms of downloads and actual specific tours taken and sites interacted with clicks. While Elizabeth talks about putting many existing places that relate to Indigenous activism on the app, she also pinpoints places that are yet to come, such as the National Native American Veterans Memorial, which was not finished at the time the app was originally created, as I mentioned above. It was finished a year and a half later. The app was finished in November 2020. Um, and I oftentimes have people ask me, you know, users of the app say, you know, why did you pick this particular place to pinpoint on the map? Um, there's nothing there. Right. Um, and that's absolutely true. Right. And that's part of my intervention, actually, is to fill that gap by putting a pinpoint on a map um, and producing this product where there is otherwise no form of public commemoration of events that went on. There's no plaque. There is no monument. There's no statue. Um, 
and in some cases, as you said, maybe there are not even um, many articles or newspaper reports. Um, it, it's really sort of uh, a memory and a history that exists only in the minds of participants. Um, and so I hope to make my own intervention into that archive, um, if you will, by putting a pinpoint on a map and producing it in this comprehensive way. I've really considered in this mapping project is what it means to map sites um, that don't yet exist, right? In order to pro project an indigenous future, right? Because in the same way that native people have been here and are here, we are also going to be here in the future. So one of the really ex interesting experiences I had when I created the guide to indigenous DC was I included a site um, the National Native American Veterans Memorial. Um, and I, I mapped it, right? I put the pinpoint there. Um, and this was at a time when it was about a year and a half before the site actually existed, right? It was projected to be developed. It was mapped, I mapped it, um, but it didn't actually open until about a year and a half later. Elizabeth's work maps indigenous activism and can be considered an act of indigenous activism itself. Joe's work too actively raises these kind of issues, presenting, teaching and illuminating otherwise missing narratives. In this next clip, Elizabeth talks about some of the limitations she encountered while researching her own work, as well as bringing together the app project. Or again, as I said earlier, oftentimes resources are so limited when it comes to an indigenous subject material to a historical context. So maybe it was easier to find some historical newspapers, but more difficult really to find anything about uh, more recent you know, indigenous activism or um, indigenous artists, things of that nature. You know, this is not necessarily related to the archives per se, but one of the, the things that I've really had to think through with the app is that the map incorporates sites where significant actions have taken place. Elizabeth talks about putting missing or ignored places on a map. So in bringing these stories to the front, who else becomes interested? Joe, for example, talked about descendants of slave owners being interested in the slave dwelling project. Let's hear about that. I noticed that uh, the slave dwelling project appeals a lot to uh, white people who are descendants of slave owners. Um, I, I, they, you know, they reveal that in the conversations that we have around the campfire, because in this evolution of the slave dwelling project, the conversation that we have around the campfire now uh, has far more substance than, than sleeping. And, and, and people, you know, were coming for that very reason, just for the conversation. Some would have come have the conversation and leave after the conversation and, you know, go to more comfortable uh, surroundings. Um, you know, folks kind of, uh, this thing has a kind of following, if you will, uh, a fan base. Uh, you know, people travel great distances to come in and, and, and take part in these in, in these sleepovers. Joe also talked about how the sleepovers in dwellings of the enslaved inevitably bring up conversations about reparations or questions about inheritance. The descendant community of those who were enslaved at those sites where the Slave Dwelling Project were beginning to develop 
more relationships with organizations that do that and ones that don't we encourage them to because uh you know when the descendant community is involved i think the stories at these places are are, are more rich and there's some challenges to that you know there there are those sites that have been doing what they've been doing for so long the way that they've been doing it is is because you know they have no desire to to reach out to the descendant community because you know sometimes that means that you know you put yourself out there for that word that scares everyone you know reparations but even further than that sometimes you 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 put yourself into a situation that it's it it could be it could be inheritance because you know if if you look at the inventory of some of these sites of of enslaved people you will see some of those people listed as mulattoes and um, you know if if there were, were mulattoes then who who fathered these children who sired these children and 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 you get you 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 get away from reparations to an inheritance and and that's you know that's uh, a, a big concern and it should be a big concern for for a lot of these sites but above and beyond that you know if you can get uh, beyond all that it's the research itself it's the knowledge that um, these descendant communities are seeking. You know, they want to know where their ancestors were. They want to know the property where they were held. They want to know that the stories of of these enslaved ancestors are being told and told properly at these sites. You know, they want they 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 are are interested in the fact that you know. Um, we're we're breaking away from this this happy slave benevolent slave owner narrative although we're breaking away from it i mean it still exists it still persists people still go to plantations seeking that um that gone with the wind um type of uh of narratives and i think if you know if this if the descendant community is involved in uh in what's disseminated at these places then you know that uh, that false um, story or that incomplete story will 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 cease to exist. So yeah, I I think it's very important that every site associated with that institution of of, of slavery should you know involve descendants today uh, of of those places. And then the conversation the two of you had takes a really interesting turn. Without naming it, you start talking about critical race theory and post-George Floyd period we're living in, in the midst of a global pandemic too. And Joe's been having virtual sleepovers with Facebook Live and the Slave Dwelling Conference is also online this year. Is that right? Yes, that's right. And Joe had some really pertinent things to say about why this conversation involving hidden histories becomes particularly important in light of the Black Lives Matter movement. One thing that struck me as someone from the UK, for example, was the way in which the Black Lives Matter protests in the States began to inspire more activist behavior in the UK with the Cecil Rhodes statue and eponymous scholarships at the University of Oxford being called attention to by the Rhodes Must Fall movement and the statue of Edward Colston, notorious enslaver, being pulled down and thrown into the Bristol Harbor. But it still seemed like there was an element of surprise for some British people, a sort of sudden realization of the UK's complicity in the transatlantic slave trade. 
it seems like there's a tendency sometimes to exceptionalize the United States and say, well, race and racism and the legacy of slavery, that's a purely American problem. So I asked Joe if he could comment on whether any slave dwelling project participants expressed similar surprise and if he had future hopes to take his work transatlantically to, as I put it, triangulate the history of the transatlantic slave trade. Triangulate the triangle? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm, 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 I'm for that. I'm certainly, I'm certainly for that. You know, I think what, what George Floyd, George Floyd's death has given us an opportunity to do is, 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 is um, well, maybe redefine or, or, or I, in some cases, um, look at colonialism and, and what it did, what it did to this world and what it did to the diaspora of Africans, uh, you know, br bringing them out of Africa. Now, of course, we can't, um, uh, we can't look at this colonialism and, and lay it all on, lay it all on at the laps of, of the English, you know, the, you know, before the English were the, um, you know, the Portuguese, the Dutch, the French and the Spanish, you know, the English were, were late to the game, but when they came in, they came in big. And, and of course, the, the United States is evidence of that. So, you know, we, we, we need to, um, you know, think more globally in, in how this all came to be. And, and George Floyd's death brought us to that place where we started to think more globally about this thing. And, and, and because of that, you know, uh, we should continue to think more globally so alongside thinking more globally, Joe has local plans. He has been invited to Virginia to do a sleepover at the governor's mansion there. A note for our listeners that after November 2021, there's going to be a new governor in that mansion. So with the new governor, Joe will need to revise his plans, I suppose. Hey, but I have been talking to a first lady. Um, and in fact, at the end of this month, I'll be going to the Virginia Virginia's governor's mansion and spending a night there. So I've been coordinating that with the first lady of Virginia. Joe also talks about visiting sites near you in Nashville, such as Traveler's Rest and Bell Mead, the latter of which is considered a Tennessee plantation dynasty. That site pretty much focuses only on the white family history from what I understand though. Is that right? Yes, but there's always more to the story, of course. While the White McGavock family are usually the focus of Belmede, it's actually their confiscated Confederate land that enabled the establishment of Fisk University by the American Missionary Association after the Civil War. Then of course, there's the Hermitage, famous home of the great white father, Andrew Jackson. Joe's presence has been pivotal at the Hermitage, however. He's conducted recurring sleepovers there and helped the site to incorporate the lives of the enslaved into the narrative that they now tell to visitors through the In Their Footsteps tour. One last example I discussed with Joe was when I met someone at the 12 South Farmers Market here in Nashville. They said, oh, you have to see this building right here. This is the Sunnyside Mansion a home which interestingly stood between Union and Confederate lines during the famous Battle of Nashville. We go around to the back of the building and there's some smaller dwellings. And then I see a sign in the building window that says, this place matters. Well, that's the marker that Joe sometimes leaves at a place after a sleepover. And so there the slave dwelling project was right in the middle of Sevier Park, Nashville. I felt Joe's presence there, it was beautiful. I really appreciate him and the work that he's doing. 
How about your interview with Elizabeth, AJ? What are some of her future plans? The guide to Indigenous DC app was very successful and clearly filled a gap for Indigenous and non-Native communities. Elizabeth and her team also built a guide to tribal colleges and universities, which includes a quarterly journal people can sign up for. She's launching the Android version of the Guide to Indigenous DC, as well as a new mobile app, the Guide to Indigenous Baltimore in November, 2021. Professor Rule will soon publish two books, one on the Indigenous DC app, the other on gendered violence in Indigenous nationhood. I'm really working now to expand um, and create a larger guide to indigenous lands project that incorporates a number of different guides, if you will. D so different apps, different maps, different guides. So I have already created a guide to tribal colleges and universities. Um, this is different and distinct um, in the sense that it's national in scope, but also the audience is different. Um, this is really designed to be a resource to um, students who are maybe interested in attending a tribal college or university. I'm also uh, currently working with other um, community collaborators and scholars and historians to create a guide to Indigenous Baltimore. That's going to be coming out in the coming months. What exciting plans for the future. I can't wait to see how things develop for Elizabeth and Joe. It's been great to hear, in their own words, the importance of changing the historical narrative and making it more complete. We look forward to continuing to excavate issues like this in our next episode, featuring Magana Kabugi, Mellon Fellow at Fisk University, and Holly Smith, Head Archivist at Spelman College Atlanta. That was our guests, Joseph McGill from the Slade Dwelling Project and Elizabeth Rule, the Indigenous creator of the Guide to Indigenous DC mobile app. You can listen to Joe and Elizabeth's interviews and learn more about their work on our website.